0: What's up, everyone? Welcome to the Finance for Physicians podcast. I'm your host, Daniel Wren. Join me as we dig into what it looks like for physicians to begin using their finances as a tool to live better lives. You can learn more about our resources at financeforphysicians.co. Let's jump into today's episode. What's up, guys? Today, I'm talking with a good buddy of mine, Justin Harvey. He's a fellow certified financial planner. We actually chatted back in um, the episode on uh, charitable giving. And so he's he's definitely a good buddy of mine, also knows the physician um, sort of situation very well. His firm is dedicated to working with a physician. It's called Anesthesia Success. He also has a podcast called Anesthesia and Pain Management Success. If you haven't uh, heard that before, definitely go and check that out. But uh, we're going to be talking today about some of the stories and experiences that we've seen in our work with physician families. Some of them are, you know, good things. A lot of them though are just kind of mistakes and avoiding them and, and stories around that. So ideally you can take some of these and apply it to your situation and and hopefully be in a better spot. So without further ado, we'll jump in today's episode.
1: What's up, everybody? It's Justin Harvey. I'm here with my good friend, Daniel Wren. Daniel is a CFP, also focuses on financial planning for physicians. He's one of those guys that like to keep on speed dial whenever I run into something weird or strange or I need a second opinion. He's been focused on physician financial planning for a number of years, based out of Lexington, Kentucky. Dan, thanks for joining.
0: Yeah, yeah. Good to be here.
1: And this is going to be another cross-posted episode. He has a podcast over at Finance for Physicians. If you haven't, please check it out. This podcast, APM Success, is certainly a partner and collaborator with the work that Dan is doing. Uh, really excited to talk to Dan today. We're just going to share some war stories from the trenches of physician financial planning, some crazy things, some awesome things, some terrible things that uh, we, I think, have a unique window into. So, Dan, I'm excited to dive in today.
0: Yeah, this will definitely be fun.
1: And just recapping <laughs> before this before this uh, conversation Unfortunately, probably the best and juiciest stories we might not even be able to share just because it's difficult to change the substantive facts enough to be able to preserve client confidentiality. So obviously, anything that we talk about today is going to do that in an appropriate manner. But uh, I want to start off, there's some good, some bad, some ugly. Let's start off with the good. There's immense value frequently that comes from working with a financial advisor who understands the physician financial trajectory. Dan, I know you have like some really big wins, some capital W's in the win column. Uh, Tell me about some of the things that you've seen.
0: Yeah, we've had, as we were talking about before we started, we've had a lot of uh, wins, but a lot of them have not been like knock it out of the park, home runs like we get a lot of singles and doubles. And I think that's kind of a misconception. Sometimes if you look at like our what I would consider our most successful or balanced clients, a lot of them are just kind of hitting the singles and the doubles. And, and it's not very exciting or sexy or, you know, headlining, but a lot of some of the wins that we have seen have been avoiding uh, big old, you know, big old obvious errors, you know,
1: and that the value of that by the way is not to be understated cuz uh between the errors that I've helped clients avoid and I'm sure you have too and the errors that we've witnessed they're huge there are five figure six figure mistakes sometimes more if they're cumulative uh, you know the cumulative impact of them and so it's important to not downplay that i think
0: yeah so we've had several a uh, lot of student loan kind of biggies we've seen a lot of these are kind of tied in with the whole like avoiding errors and so I had uh, one one specific example that comes to mind. I had some, uh, clients, the hospital was paying the student loan on their behalf. And so that's, I guess, a little bit of a risk there because there's a little bit of removed, it's removed from the client. And so the client was just like, it's getting taken care of. My hospital's taking care of it. It's fine. And so we happened to be, I don't even know why we were looking at the payments, but we happened to be digging into the payments. Maybe there was a red flag. I can't remember, but turns out that there, was quite a few payments missing in the record of their payment history from the hospital. The numbers didn't happen. And so we dug in and verified through the hospital that the payments were actually made. And then the student loan servicer, I won't name, but it took him a year, probably forever of calling and ultimately verified some of them, but not all of them. And the client basically got frustrated and tired of fighting which made me, it kind of boiled my blood a little bit, but we had to kind of let some of it go. But basically, they're like, we don't have record of those payments and we're just not gonna deal with it. So <laughs> we got a few of them covered, but not all of them. So you gotta keep an eye on your servicer, especially when a third party's paying.
1: 100%, and honestly, I just tell people at this point, I've heard so many of those types of stories. I just tell people, literally anytime you talk to a servicer, especially if PSLF is on the line, just record the call. Keep a bulletproof record and assume that Something that you ask to happen is not going to happen and that you're going to need to prove it. And if you assume that and you go in with that sort of mindset, then you'll be protected. And, you know, I, I can't, there's a handful of times that come immediately to mind where the, I was on the, as a third party on the call with a loan servicer and my client, and we're trying to do something very basic. That's part of how the plan functions to preserve PSLF and the servicer again and again and again is instructing the client to make a decision, basically to remove themselves from a capped income-based payment plan to go onto an uncapped plan, which would cost them tens of thousands of dollars more in pursuit of PSLF and the servicers instructing them very factually, like this is what you need to do if you want to move towards PSLF. It was wrong. It was 100% wrong. Had I not been on the phone and frequently deal with this, like they talk to servicers who very matter-of-factly say, here's what you need to do. And it's the diametric opposite, unfortunately. And it just, you know, you said boils your blood earlier. That's that's <laughs> That's how I feel.
0: Yeah. They're not working for the for the client. So you got to think about who's working for who and whose interest they're looking out for. And a lot of times it's just ignorance. I think uh, we had another student loan uh, story with a... Uh, well, this has been several, actually. Uh, the cert- they just completely miscalculated the payment because it's income-based calculations. And so in those situations, in several, like I said, a few of them have been like several thousand per month under-calculated. This is where it actually benefited the client, the errors, but several thousand per month in, in, in a few of these situations. So what the client was like, what in the world? Because we always are double checking the payments and we raise the issue and they're like, oh, and so uh, what we suggested to them is we're like, call the servicer and say that you just wanted to make sure there wasn't an error and what's going on. And, and they, so they did that. And the servicer was like, no, 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 it's correct. It's correct. And I'm like, OK, take note of that, save all your documents. Because I double checked their documents too. Everything they submitted was legit. Like I couldn't understand where the error came from. And so it was just a blatant error, I guess. And um, they called the servicer to try to make good with it. And they just said, no, it's not an error. And uh, it favored the client by a ton. I had another one <laughs> that was uh, interesting. It tied into PSLF, but I guess it wasn't directly a PSLF issue. But this client got. There was an error with their employer and they overpaid them by $50,000 one year. <laughs> and I don't know what happened. They were in training. So maybe it was just that they misclassified them as not in training. I, I'm not sure, but they knew that the error was happening in the moment. And so they were responsible and saved kind of the difference. But what happened is this kind of train wreck pursuit afterward is like you get the PSLF income verification, then the PSLF payment completely wrong, and then the W twos are wrong, and the tax returns wrong, and then it's got a. It was just an absolute mess of a situation, and th- that one unfortunately was not. There wasn't really. We did as good as we could. We found they knew that the air was happening and brought, brought up the issue. It took the employer just like six or eight months to fix it, which is nuts. That kind of stuff happens, though.
1: Yeah, especially with these big health systems it's like turning a cruise ship. And this is why I'm always uh, beating the drum for independent physician practice. If As a doctor, go to a doctor whose job it is to make sure that that is happening the right way. I mean, obviously, I'm biased here, but it doesn't take six months rather than running it up the flagpole at corporate.
0: And this was a big ship. Let's just say this is the biggest ship. Okay. If, if yeah. you can.
1: Yeah, we we like to not name names on this show because uh, we don't want to hear from any lawyers in mean, the lines. Dan, I'm sure as an investment advisor yourself, you've run into Citadel, situ- have asked you, come with ideas. Hey, I'm thinking about opening a Robinhood account and trading GameStop or some other, we'll call them harebrained schemes or other things that perhaps might be riskier than one of your clients realize. Have you ever interacted with that?
0: <laughs> Never. <laughs> no, I think that's probably more like a daily kind of a thing. not quite daily, but definitely weekly, where we're hearing of things that are, I would call like ultra risky investment opportunities that maybe sometimes they're aware of the risk. Other times, they're just kind of not completely unaware of sort of risk. But I would kind of categorize that as the ultra high risk, kind of bordering on gambling sorts of deals that you see out there. And it come and could come in the form of like a business deal. Uh, from your buddy or like a really uh, high risk stock play or even like options and crazy call put strategies and that kind of thing. Uh, But that there's um, I've had several clients lose quite a bit of, of money. I've had a few make a little bit of money. I don't have any like home runs where people actually hit it big on the really ultra high risk sorts of situations, but I've definitely had quite a few. I think you had a good one where you had a story of someone really losing quite a bit of money and that kind of thing.
1: Yeah. One of the first filters that I always implement when I'm doing investment due diligence is liquidity. Like if somebody wants to do something, how easily can we undo that investment? And if it's, if it's locked up for six months, a year, five years, seven years, like some of these, uh, you know, closely held like private equity or ventures are, then we want to understand that. We want to make sure that we can afford to not do anything as this slowly goes to zero over a five-year period. And one of my clients had, you know, brought to me a real estate deal where there was this somebody who was investing in improving and leasing up apartment buildings somewhere in the Southwest. My client says, hey, I'm interested in doing this. What do you think? You know, 50K, 100K minimum. And that was a meaningful part. That's probably, you know, Twelve to fifteen percent of their net worth at the time, and they were on the risk scale. I'd say they're probably a three on a scale of one to ten. And they were brought this deal actually by one of their very close friends, whom they trusted, had gone to college with, and this friend had made a lot of money with this developer doing this strategy of improving these apartments and then leasing them up at higher leases, higher uh, rent rates, and then you know capturing that delta. And I told my client flat out like you're a three on a scale of one to 10. This is like a 34. It's not even on the scale. (laughs) How
0: do we reconcile? it?
1: Yeah. And so just so you know, kind of where this falls, because they, you know, they didn't have that kind of understanding and the liquidity was a big part of it. And the fact that it was only one building was a big part of it. Like, what if an asteroid hits the building or some other weird thing happens or there's issues with mold? Or, I mean, I don't, I don't do a lot of like, you know, multifamily residential due diligence, but the liquidity thing alone was red flags. for, And so, I talked them out of it. Now, this this buddy was talking to his other buddies, and I know there were some others that did decide to participate. And it was a deal that ended up really going south. And the market was moving against this um, type of residence in this geographic region, and they ended up losing significant amounts of money. Uh, Some of them, it was like a big chunk of their nest egg. And so this is a perfect situation where, and I don't usually run into these, but this is one that sticks out in my mind as, Talking somebody out of something that has low liquidity and ended up losing a lot of money and would have significantly impaired their ability to retire.
0: Yeah, I think the key there is like a percentage of your net worth, I think is important. Like if you're gonna do the ultra high risk sorts of deals, you might ought to, you probably ought to limit it to a certain percentage of your invest investments or net worth. You also don't want it to, I don't think like if I'm doing that kind of a deal, I would not want it to be at risk of tanking my retirement. Like it shouldn't, if it's a ultra high risk deal, it doesn't need to be like you rely on it for your gold to be uh, hit. And then if you are going to do it too, you got to do the due diligence, like you said. So I I run into a lot of people that aren't even, so I'm not like experts at deals. We're not, as financial planners, we're just kind of hole pokers really. (laughs) I mean, a lot of what we do is just kind of ask, you know, questions about what's been done so far. Have you done the, you know, whatever. But um, what I find is a lot of people are not able to be doing the due diligence themselves. And that's a kind of a red flag in itself is if you aren't able to understand the deal enough to know whether or not it's good, that's probably like, you know, that's a red flag in itself. You you need to be able to understand the working.
1: I know that uh, something that you and I have both done is looking at contracts. And I love the contract landscape because it's a moment in time when you can do something that's like really exciting and that massively helps your financial picture potentially i know that uh, i've actually heard stories that you've shared in the past about some wins that you had in that area how do you approach helping a physician look through a contract and do you have any specifics
0: yeah we so we tip we typically almost always recommend like a contract attorney or contract consultant review the contracts from the kind of legal perspective so we're always not always, almost always though, looking at the contract, but we look at it from a little bit of a different perspective. We're more looking at how it affects the plan and the compensation and the benefits and that kind of thing. Sometimes we'll spot stuff, but we're, we're not as qualified to kind of like read into the legal language. Uh, but an example, so we just had one, actually not, not too long ago, like the other day, the contract, uh, initial contract proposal for the client was, um, you know, X dollars salary, whatever, $300,000 base salary. Plus they were offering a, a $75,000 student loan payment. Uh, I don't know what they called it, but basically a payment to the, for the student loan. That's like a stipend for the student loans or something along those lines. And when you, re- so I, I I suggested, that kind of caught my attention. The student loan stipend, first of all, because it was a 501c3 hospital. So I'm like, hmm, PSLF, we got to make sure this is not going to, because this client in particular the payment's going to be very, very low the first or maybe second year too, especially with COVID forbearance, like the first few months are going to be really low, you know, $0 payments. And so it turns out we kind of looked into it a little bit more. So the rules for this particular hospital were that it had to be paid directly to the um, loan servicer, the stipend. And I think that they were going to do $25,000 a year for three years, maybe something like that. But they were they were going to require it have to be directly to the loan servicer for good reason, probably because they want to make sure it gets paid. To the, they want to make sure they're used for the purpose. Uh, then we asked, you know, can it get paid directly to the client? And they're like, yeah, we'll pay it to di- directly to the client, but they need to verify payment of the loan for the equivalent amount. And so we're like, no, 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 no that's not going to work. So just to clarify why that's a problem, basically with PSLF, like anything above the scheduled payment is like, Tossing money out the window. And in this situation, it was like tossing money out the window that you also get taxed on. So it was like, it would actually make this person, it would make him like worse off uh, having this stipend than he would have been without it at all. And so uh, I was like, I started by saying, maybe, you know, try to explain this to them, ask for some alternatives. And so they were having trouble uh, getting traction. And ultimately, in this situation, I ended up just talking with the hospital. Executives, myself, and I was like, "Here's how it works. It's basically like throwing money away. Can we restructure it?" And I think this one's kind of uh, very recent. I don't, I don't know what the outcome is. I think that they're going to work, work with it and, and readjust it. But I have a feeling that they'll make this one work in some cases. So I've had that specific situation come up probably five or six times. In some cases, it's gotten to the point where I'm like, "Listen, you need to decline the bonus. Like straight up tell them, don't pay it to me." Because all the we tried all the options and they're just not hearing it. Uh, in the times I've had to do that, they finally were like, "Okay, something must be up. <laughs> like either this dude's lost his mind, or or uh, we, maybe there's something." So because it's it's a budget neutral thing for them. Like they don't. It's not going to change their costs. They're just trying to make sure it goes to the right place. But in my experience is once they understand what the deal is, they're like, "Oh, okay." that doesn't make any sense. And that's like a that's like a $75,000 swing. I mean, that's straight up big time difference impact for just one individual.
1: Yeah. Yeah, that's a great example. I think those student loan only payments from 501c3s always look at under a microscope. It's one of those things you kind of have to wonder, why is this not part of the institutional intelligence to say, we are like, literally every doctor that works for us qualifies for PSLF. And so, If there is an instance in which we can compensate them in a way that's not like directly to their loan servicer, that's probably beneficial. So anybody out there working for a 501c3, beware of this. I think that's a great point. Play out the ultimate inclusion of the math problem and understanding if you're on production, what do you need to do to hit certain targets to get a certain resulting compensation? Conversely, if you're on a salary or salary plus bonus, you're kind of capped out. And understanding what are you leaving on the table. And one of the really powerful things I've been able to do for some of my clients is help them understand if you're producing, say, a million dollars of collections from your patients based on procedures you do through the year, and you're getting a salary of 250 plus maybe a $50,000 bonus if you hit a certain metric, that's $300,000 total, which is 30% of your Uh, Collection. Now, I might also happen to know that perhaps a standard percentage of collections would be 40% or 42 or 45%. So, if your compensation mechanism is a salary plus bonus and you're doing collections up in the 900, a million, 1.2 range, then you're going to be leaving money on the table based on how you're paid. So, as you're negotiating, rather than saying, hey, I want a bigger salary, say, we can align incentives to say, you know, the doctor makes more when the practice makes more. And you're you're operating on a percentage basis at this point, and that can be. I I've, I've had one client in particular where we changed this mechanism. We went from base plus bonus to percent of collections, and based on flat production, it was a hundred thousand dollar year differential. So understanding that math problem and working it out based on the variables in your situation really powerful.
0: Yeah, the only thing I would kind of throw out in regards to that is kind of an alternative we've seen sometimes. I guess people are have super low tolerances for fluctuating compensation. And so I've seen it where they're kind of like too much in the uh, sharing incentives realm for their taste. And they're like, I just want guaranteed compensation set up. And so, you know, you can kind of sometimes request to shift back the other direction. Now, typically, the more you go that salary route, the less you are um, you end up making. But it is a more secure form of compensation. And some people pre- prefer it, um, even knowing that they're forfeiting money. But there's a lot of complexities in the contracts there with physicians, especially now, some some institutions have kind of like standards. They're like, we will not change or what. And there's no negotiating. And maybe there seems like in our in, in in my experience, most of them are. Yeah, even, even sometimes when they say they're not. <laughs>
1: yeah, I'm thinking about I've had some I'll call them very qualitative, like having nothing to do with numbers, types of convers with clients that have been jarring, eye opening, and really. And I'm sure you've run into this with any conversation. Too. the one that comes to mind as far as the holy cow, I can't believe this never came up. <laughs> Type of category and you mentioned one that I want to hear in a minute, but I was sitting down with a client. It was one of our first handful of meetings. We were basically, I was doing the financial plan and then we're kind of sitting down after we've crunched all the numbers and I, the conversation basically starts like, what's, what matters to you? What's important? Where are we going? Not only as, you know, uh, investors, but as people, as professionals, as a family, as spouses. And the husband, you know, describes, well, you know, I'd, I'd like to be retired by age 53 and I want a savings rate of X and I want to make sure that this much is going into these types of accounts every year. And I feel like if we can be doing that, that I'm going to be feeling confident and good about life. And And I'm just kind of looking at the wife. And this is one of these really fun dynamics is you get to sort of ask the question of both spouses and then, you know, sort of create the space for the other spouse who's probably less financially literate and maybe less, they feel intimidated to even have a seat at table in this. So I turned to the, in this case, it was the wife and said, you know, well, how about you? Like, what's on your mind? Where do you want to go? And what do you envision life like? And she's starting to cry at this point. And she's, she's like, I'm losing sleep. All I can think about is the fact that we just bought this house that costs $1.1 million and we're not able to, you know, get competitively priced life insurance. And I'm just terrified that the, you know, my little boy and little girl that we're raising are going to grow up without a dad (laughs) and that I'm not going to be able to afford this house and I'm going to be destitute. And that's all I can think about. And the husband is sort of like his eyebrows are ratcheting up and up and up as she's sort of like unloading this significant emotional burden and this is one of those things i it really left a dent in my psyche and never take this for granted that there's alignment between you know husband and wife or whatever i'm sure dan you've probably experienced this with your own spouse i know i do the that third party asking two people the same question and allowing the space each of those each of those spouses answer the question honestly sometimes it just it totally changes the paradigm in which you're functioning and obviously at that point we were able to talk about financial security talk about risk control and insurance and how we wanted to address that. But had it not been for that conversation, it's easy to say, oh, okay, yeah, savings rate of X, let's do this and that. And maybe I would have talked about insurance, just a process of planning, but certainly not addressing the deep emotional distress that my client was going through that I as an advisor is that's critically important for me to understand that I want to definitely probably first direct my attempt to be able to make the client feel cared for and Understood.
0: And so then, once you get your life insurance, you have to make sure the beneficiary arrangements stay good, right? Yeah.
1: (laughs) Tell me about that. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I had an interesting one at my early in my career. I worked for a big insurance company and selling life insurance. And we we had this was not someone I worked directly with, but I was in the office when it happened because it kind of was a commotion. But this uh, lady came in, um, you know, middle aged lady, kind of like excited, uncomfortable but excited, and raising a little bit of commotion and and then goes into somebody's office, has a meeting and then leaves like, whoa, what happened? That was just awkward. It was weird. Uh, and so it turns out that the, that was the ex-spouse of the ex-husband's life, life insurance beneficiary. He had passed away in an ATV accident, forgotten to change the beneficiary on his life insurance. Ex-spouse coming in to collect on the $500,000 life insurance policy uh, that she had known all along, interestingly, this was the kind of interesting, I potentially, like, you're skeptical. You're like, whether was she involved in the, you know, ATV accident? But, uh, you know, the, the husband had gotten, they had gotten divorced. He had forgotten to change the beneficiary on his life insurance policy and had died in an ATV accident ex-spouse coming in to collect on rent space. And she's going to get it. Like, there's nothing you can do. He had, so we were so curious. We're like, what about the current spouse? And of course he was married, had children. We're like, oh my gosh, it was like worst case of everything scenario. Uh, But they have to, the insurance company will pay the ex-spouse if they're listed as the beneficiary. It doesn't matter how much, what should have been done, or what the right thing to do was, they're going to pay what the beneficiary designation says. And so you have to be careful with that. I've seen ex spouses, I've seen parents still while you're married. I've seen uh, children, one child named when it should have been, you know, all the children. I've seen the guardian named. That's a little risky. You know, people are not sure. They don't want to name the children because they're not, they don't want them to get such a large sum of money. But then so they'll like, oh, I'll name the guardian. But the problem with that is guardian can do whatever they want with the money. So you have to be careful with who you name as beneficiary and keep an eye on it every so often
1: one of those things is like annoying administrative stuff that doesn't matter it's not a big deal until it's a huge deal and it's too late
0: right that's and it a-
1: definitely warrants you know periodic checking the temperature making sure okay here's what we got listed is this still and this is part of my sort of annual review i'm sure it is too dan make it trying to prevent that essentially and especially if there's a divorce that happens if it's born keeping everything up to date never letting it go too long before asking mm-hmm. those questions
0: yeah we've seen a lot of uh House, I think the house we were sharing some of our stories of, uh, I guess this is more of like uh, avoiding some mistakes with house purchase and that sort of thing. For whatever reason, maybe that's just across everyone, but that seems to be a common one we we run across regularly in our practice. Is that true with you?
1: It is true, especially for the early career. You know, yeah. I just finished training. I'm moving across the country to take my first job, and I want to go from you know paying nine hundred dollars a month in rent to you know a six thousand dollars a month mortgage. In some case, uh, it's a transition and one that should be navigated intelligently.
0: Well, but it's you can see on the one side, it's like I've rented so. I've, I've been renting for years and years and I've been in training for years and I've just now finally like finishing and I'm tired of renting because it doesn't it's not as it stinks to rent like and you got to move and it's not your place. And you're like, finally, I have the money and you're going to make plenty of money. It's like, finally, I have the money to buy a nice place. And so if I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it right. And I'm going to find the right place. And so that's all kind of the psychology going into it, which is makes a lot of sense But it gets all crunched up. It's like the timing is just terrible. It's like everything happens in like a month almost. It's like you finish, you move, especially when you're moving, it just adds to, and you got to look for a house. It's difficult to qualify because you have tight finances uh, sometimes. And then you pull the trigger on a house that you're not 100% sure is in the right area in a practice that you're not 100% sure is going to work out. And there's just a lot of risk there in that decision. So naturally, that's where a lot of mistakes happen.
1: Yeah, I mean, and we, anybody who bought a house in like the 2005 to 2007 range, I know you probably know some people like this, and I do too, that it was that was a time when the time of the ninja loan, the no income, no job application, where you don't even have to prove to the bank, you make money, they'll give you 100% of the purchase price. the house house. you got a pulse. Exactly. And in some cases, probably, I bet there have been mortgages awarded to dead people. Maybe not even. Probably. And that ended badly for people. I mean, imagine you're a physician who's finishing training. You buy a house in 2007 and the for whatever reason, your group gets acquired. It doesn't work out. You're not on the partner track anymore and you want to move. Now the house that you bought for 800K is worth 550 and you've got an $800,000 mortgage on it. So you need to cut a check for a quarter million dollars Mm -hmm. in order to get out from under it.
0: That is quite onerous. I think that is a um the younger group because that's been a while I guess. Like it's been a while since 2008. 2008 was the last like big time real estate tank and everything went down in pretty much all areas of the country a lot and in certain areas it went way down like Las Vegas, uh like some of the touristy areas in Florida had big like 50% plus price real estate price reduction. I had one in, client in particular that uh bought they were in training in florida uh and bought their house probably like zero down zero anything pulse you're good and got the house um uh just for training so and then they go into practice and move and um they're finishing in like 2008 (laughs) bad timing but 2008 time frame and so the house price their house price basically had gone down by 50 percent so like $300,000 Three hundred thousand dollar house is worth one fifty. So in order for and so they financed one hundred percent of it. So their mortgage at that time is probably like two eighty something. So or two ninety maybe even. So they owe two ninety on a house that is now worth one fifty, and they're finishing training. It's like and they don't have. The resources. They're like, what do we do about that? So in order for them to sell it, they'd have to write a check for the different. They're upside down, basically. So what they had to do, they had no choice, basically. They had to keep it and it is a rental house. You saw a lot of those in like the 2008 through 2014 fi- timeframe is like the forced landlords. There was a ton of people that had like one or two rental houses because they were just like, and you uh, sometimes they would be like, yeah, I wanted to get in the real estate business, but go <laughs> <but laughs> back layers. It was like they made a little bit of a poor decision and ended up in a house that they couldn't get rid of. And so they were landlords uh, on that house. And this was I was working with them in my old firm. I don't know if they it, it, the last time I talked to him, they still had the rental house and had not quite. And th- this is like five years into practice and because that's a big nut to crack there. And it took a while for real estate prices to uh, rebound. But I guess the moral of the story is housing prices do go down sometimes, even in areas that uh, have very appealing metrics, like even in areas you don't expect them to go. And sometimes by a whole lot.
1: And right now it's very geographically dependent. We're still understanding what COVID means, but there's definitely been a flight from at least at a high level, high tax jurisdictions, yeah, in big cities, if I I could work from home and not have to deal with the 9% New York, you know, state tax or whatever. And that's been a big shift that we're still, it's playing out in real time. So this, although 2008 feels like a long time ago, there's different versions of this in different geographies that can be any given person specific problem. One other thing, Dan, that I wanted to cover, and I'm curious on your thoughts. Have you, I'm interested to hear about a time when your client taught you something, either like financially or something about life. I have one, you could think about it. I had one It sticks in my brain. I, I was really lucky when I first started my career to work with many people who make many millions of dollars, what we would call ultra high net worth. And by some funny circumstance, the totem pole on which (laughs) I was at the bottom, my boss couldn't go and my manager couldn't go to this meeting with this client. So I ended up getting in the taxi and going down to the law office in Center City here in Philly and sitting in with this estate attorney and our big shot baller entrepreneur client, who's probably got like a $90 million business. The estate attorney was this old, you know, Gray Fox type who's like, oh, yeah, you know, we can, we do this all the time. Like, we'll, break up the LLC. We're going to give a part of it to your wife, a part of it to your kids, put it all in trust. We'll have like the minority discount applied, basically reducing the face value of the components of the business. And then we'll shove it into this trust. And this is going to be this great tax move and we'll get a 30% discount versus sticker and it'll save you $7 million or some sort of whatever. And so I'm sitting there with my client and I'm in my suit. This is like my first... (laughs) <laughs> meeting with a real human basically
0: when you wore suits
1: yeah that's right remember that when we yeah, went in a conference to, room too. with other people crazy and then the lawyer gets up and he's got to go use the bathroom and the client turns to me and this is really my boss's client not mine and he's like justin i hope you're paying attention like this lawyer has no skin in the game he doesn't care if this works or not he wants to get a fee for creating a complicated legal strategy that i can't understand and he's you know this lawyer is 71 years old and if this doesn't work in 20 years he's not going to know or care but I'm going to have to deal with it. And it was this, for me, like a real, I mean, I was, this was 11 years ago now, and it left a dent uh, in, in my brain to say, like, let's understand, follow the money, understand the incentive, and understand the stakes. Like, who's going to deal with the consequences of any given decision? This is really true in finances. Like, if something goes wrong, is your, is this advisor, is this person who, is giving you a certain piece of advice or even a friend giving career advice or whatever, are they gonna have to help you deal with the consequences or are they just telling you what you think in some sort of like complicated, sophisticated way that you can't understand? I think this is really true in finances. And I respected this entrepreneur who built this business from the ground up. And he basically was a multi-millionaire, a multi-deca millionaire because of this instinct. Like if he didn't understand it, he didn't wanna do it because he knew he would have to deal with the consequences and this is true in like tax planning and some more advanced insurance stuff and pensions. And there's a lot of advanced financial planning ideas out there. And if you as a practice owner, as a business owner, if you're getting pitched something and it doesn't feel right in your gut, I, this is my instinct too, Dan is like, I have to just say, like, I'm, I'm not into that. And even if it's technically correct, even if everything that lawyer said could have worked, that it could have saved $7 million in taxes, like, I don't like the risk that that introduces to my life and the stress associated with it. And I'm not going to go there.
0: I would have to say I have not been gifted with that natural ability to sniff out that sort of thing. That's been something I've had to work towards is, is uh, kind of uh, gravitating to I'm, 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 a sh- I'm uh, prone to the shiny object like naturally. And so I've had to work on uh, getting better at, uh, you know, the understanding aspect and not doing something until it's fully understood. It's easier almost to do it with clients for me in my planning work than it is my own stuff. That's just kind of the psychology, I think, when you're in that role is because I feel a higher pressure load to it's their stuff instead of mine. I'm just a high risk kind of a dude as well. So I'll I'll kind of roll with some uh, exciting uh, ideas and try them out sometimes, uh, especially personally. Um, It's just kind of fun for me. But I completely agree with that, like in principle, and that you have to, it's, it's safer, especially when you're not experienced with things to default to no is my answer always unless i completely understand it if i have if i don't understand it if i can't explain it to my buddy you got to say no <laughs> until you understand it that's true with uh, business deals with whole life insurance like all this life insurance complicated investment deals people try to sell like it's difficult like it's hard for us to understand it like and we're dealing with them regularly and if you can't understand it uh, or if i can't explain it to you to probably default to saying no because that's what the whole point of this whole conversation is. It's like it's not the people that are knocking it out of the park with a deal that their buddy brought to them. It's the people that are hitting like doubles and singles and avoiding the deal from that are that looks suspicious. It's the people that are avoiding the mistakes that are that are really coming out ahead. I think in the long run, it's like playing tennis. You know, like you you play with. The, I'm not great at tennis, but like I play with like a. Grandpa and he's like whooping my butt just because I can't keep the daggone ball and and they're just hitting it right. so I make all these crazy errors because I'm trying to like hit it so hard, you know, but it's about minimizing errors.
1: Yeah. Especially in the, you know, pretty much everybody who's listening to this podcast, many are going to have probably a couple degrees and they're going to be pretty intelligent and uh, are going to be making a good income. And I'd say that's absolutely true. Is uh, if you can minimize the unforced errors, Lee pointed out, then you're going to do very well. And there's a lot of benefit to taking this principle. Like if I can't understand it, I'm pretty smart at baseline. And if even, especially if my trusted advisor can't explain it to me in a way that I understand, or if they explain it and it doesn't feel right in my gut, this is me. I'm a gut kind of guy. I say like, jam all the information into your brain process it and then make a decision from your gut based on the things that you know. And I just, I, I saw that in this entrepreneur 11 years ago. And it's something that I feel very strongly as something I want to impart to my current clients and also people listening to this podcast. I I think that's a, this is just Justin talking. This is my personal philosophy. I think that will seldom let you down. And if you, if you find yourself stepping out into things that you don't understand, you're more likely to get blown up in a way that you couldn't.
0: Mm -hmm. Now you have to be, you have to proactively increase your understanding too. So you, you got to be careful not to end up with like, a big old bucket of cash, just because your paralysis analysis. So all this stuff's a balance, you know. Like at some point, you got to kind of take a little bit of a risk and step out. And but it, it, like I said, like all these stories I can think of are very much um, kind of like you know, ignorant mistakes need to avoid if you really kind of take a step back and look at it.
1: Yeah. So let's wrap it up. This has been really fun. Just re- <laughs> rehashing stories. I think like understanding. Oh actually there's one last one the CPA one. Did you talk about oh, that yeah. already? No. I think I this didn't. is a good one to wrap it up on.
0: This is a good one because it's like my ignorance. <laughs> so like I said I was getting into it. I've kind of had to learn a lot of these things the hard way. I think a lesson I've learned over time is I don't know much. You know, I don't I don't know as much as I've had to kind of run into brick walls and and that sort of thing. So with a CPA. So I had a I was an independent contractor in early career like 10 or 15 years ago, that kind of time frame, and had, you know, taxes were pretty complicated then. And so I hired a CPA and it was actually somebody that was referred to me by several other advisors that I was buddies with and worked with him for a few years. He was very inexpensive. It was like, I was telling Justin, like a couple hundred dollars a year for my taxes that were actually pretty complicated. I think at the time I thought they were simple. I'm like, I could do this myself because I was an ego young guy, didn't know what I was talking about. But uh, in reality, looking back, they were actually pretty complicated. He did them for a few years for whatever reasons. Maybe it was just gut or whatever. I ended up just stop stopping working with him and hired a different accountant. And um, I got audited like the year after that, and it was a big audit. Like they really dug into my stuff. It was painful. I learned a lot of good things about how audits work. Uh, that's, <laughs> but they they dug into everything. Like it was it was months and months and months of audit and. It worked out okay. Like it, there was not any too bad of negative. I ended up having to write a check for fifteen hundred dollars. Turns out the issue was an error that that accountant made with how they did the tax return. I'm not going to go into the error, but there was an error. That was the first issue. Second issue, uh, that accountant ended up getting in trouble for stealing some money uh, from another client shortly thereafter. A few few uh, year years so after that. So I'm like, thank goodness I uh, stopped working with that. Fast forward a few years from there he gets into some, um, you know, major stuff like drugs and prostitution. And so I think I think that they're in jail now, probably. But what's so crazy about that story is so like, my first accountant is, I think in jail now, (laughs) which is ridiculous. But first of all, everything kind of checked out. But there was a few red flags. So it was too inexpensive. Like it was very, very low, low, low cost. That was a little bit of a, a red flag. And then my gut started to go like going with Justin's gut. You know, I just didn't, it didn't feel right. I had to meet, I met at his house. That was a little strange. And this this was in the time when everybody had offices and met kind of in conferences. I would go to his house. There was a few other sketch things that I'm not going to say because it just, Uh, will incriminate. But uh, there was a lot, there was a few other red flags, but basically moral of the story is it's sometimes it's worthwhile to go with like a bigger firm, get a good accountant, I guess it's the moral (laughs) story. Like if you're going to get, do your taxes on TurboTax or get a good accountant and it's worthwhile to pay a fair fee for a good service provider. And, you know, sometimes there's some value in like having a little bit of a, a firm presence, like don't work with, I mean, it's okay to work with a mom and pop, but like there's a little bit of risk there built in and that it's like out of somebody's home. I had to learn that the hard way. It wasn't ended up having, you know, an audit and check to write, but uh, you never know how things play out.
1: So there's a lot of mistakes to be made out there. (laughs) Yeah. And uh, go with your gut if things don't make sense. If your accountant is too cheap, if you don't understand a complicated strategy, your advisor or your lawyer is to you, you know, if, uh, if any of this is going on, get a second opinion, get outside help. Understand that, uh, especially as an attending, especially if you're a business owner or practice, the mistakes get really expensive. And an error that a CPA makes instead of a $1,500 check, it could be much, much more than that. And I've seen big five and six figure tax errors. So I guess that's the point of today's conversation is just to give you some context for all the different landmines out there. And if you see yourself as a do it yourself are great, you need to be very engaged. And there's still some professionals that you need to collaborate closely with. But if you think that feels very uncomfortable, and you think that You might step on one of those landmines. Frankly, it's the ones that you don't know that are there that are going to blow you up. So even if you, even if you don't think you will, you might, but qualified help. I'm just such a big, obviously I'm biased in this, but it's, it's, I'm such a big proponent of if you make enough to engage for a luxury service. I mean, my clients by and large don't paint their house and don't cut their grass. And I think that handling the tasks and strategies associated with their personal finances in a way that keeps them engaged, but not having to enact it themselves is just it's so worth it.
0: Yeah. And that's that's what a lot of our day job is doing. But like like Justin was saying, everybody's different. So you kind of got to Take this into consideration your situation, and that's part of the fun part about it is it's um, you know always evolving too everybody's situation changes and sometimes you got to be like me and just sometimes you got to learn the hard way and you know make some mistakes and run into brick walls. and but you know if you make the mistake, just make sure to learn from it. Like that's key. The worst is to have to be making recurring mistakes.
1: Well, uh, Dan, it's been a pleasure speaking with you today. Thanks for joining.
0: Yeah, yeah, good fun always. As always, thank you so much for joining us today. If you found this valuable, please give us a review on iTunes and share with a friend. Also, check out our website at financeforphysicians.co for all sorts of additional content. See you next time. Finance for Physicians is not an investment, tax, legal, or financial advisor.